what's going on. Welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kremitzos, and I'm so excited that you're here. This podcast was designed for you if you are a woman entrepreneur who is incredibly driven and you want to be the one fully in charge of what your business looks like and therefore what your life looks like. We build businesses by design. I am so excited because today you are listening to the Great Eight series. I have dug into the archives of the Biz Women Rock podcast episodes from the past couple of years and literally handpicked, okay, well, not literally, virtually, I guess, handpicked eight of the best conversations that I've had over these past couple of years. Now, I'm bringing these specific eight to you for a couple of reasons. Number one, perhaps they got the most downloads over all of these years, and or perhaps they were just conversations that I keep finding myself referring to, whether in conversation with clients of mine, with women who are asking questions within the Biz Women Rock Facebook group, or honestly, just me remembering things as I go through along my own business journey. And I'm like, oh, I remember on the, on this episode, so-and-so said that, <laughs> which is sort of a long way of saying that there are so many amazing nuggets of wisdom within all of these episodes. And lastly, And really a big, big reason why I wanted to share the grouping of these eight episodes together is because they really embody what my true beliefs about business have become, that you are the one who gets to decide what your business looks like, and you have the freedom and the power to create what that is, and that the business that you're building is all about the inside journey. It is so much about who you are deciding to become and who you are evolving into and tapping into that at every step along the way. And that it's all okay, that your journey does not have to look like anyone else's. With that, I hope you enjoy each and every single one of these eight episodes. Whether you listened to them when they originally came out or this is your first time hearing them, I really encourage you to turn up the volume and listen to the wisdom within. I've had the pleasure of watching the incredible growth of my friend Lauren Davenport for years now. Her company, Symphony Agency, is in my backyard in the Tampa, St. Petersburg area. And I've seen her go from a solo service provider to running a multi-seven-figure business with 20-plus employees in such a relatively short period of time. Symphony Agency is a full-service marketing company that provides innovative strategies and implementation for their clients both digitally and traditionally, but it didn't start that way. During this awesome interview with Lauren, we get deep into her journey as an entrepreneur, how she started in 2010 as a social media strategist and manager. That's what we would call it today, but back then it did not have that sophisticated of a title and why she uprooted her entire business and moved to a city where she knew no one. By the way, there was a very strategic business reason behind this. She shares about what she did to establish herself and her brand in a new market and how she eventually learned how to successfully delegate so she could build her team and grow her empire. 
We ultimately talk about her current challenges of managing her team and talk openly about the common thing we all face as entrepreneurs, that dissonance between being super confident in your ability to provide a solid service and also knowing that we're human and there's a lot of gunk underneath this hood. Lauren is incredible and I know you'll get so much out of our interview. So enjoy. Lauren, thank you so much for being on the show, girl. I'm so happy you're here. Hey, Miss Katie. I'm thrilled to be here. How cool is it to be on a show called Biz Women Rock? I mean, I'm, that's amazing. You do, of course. So yeah, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of like this nice. We are one in arms. Biz women are awesome. <laughs> I love it. It's so true too. I think so. You know, the ironic thing about this conversation and the fact that I finally have you on the podcast is that you are here local to me. I literally could drive to your house right now in about twenty minutes, and um, this is the first time that I'm having you on the show. And uh, this is only maybe the second time in a few years that I've like seen you face to face. What were you thinking, Katie? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just both two insanely busy women, so. Which is why I'm having you on the show, because as I have watched you from afar for all of these years, working inside the Tampa Bay Business Owners, TBBO, our local company for so long, I had the pleasure of kind of seeing you or getting introduced to you coming onto the scene. And I have watched your explosive growth. And so I have seen you go from a a single person service provider to a very, very well-established seven-figure digital marketing company and full service marketing company here locally. And I want to make sure that people see that, oh, I didn't just snap my fingers and that's, it became true. You know, like I want them to see (laughs) that there's a lot of strategy and hard work and great ideas and horrible ideas and ups and downs and a lot of that stuff in it, which is why I really wanted to have you on the show because I think that your story lends itself so well to just showing the the truth about what it takes to grow a serious empire. So that being said, if you can do me this favor, do a brief description of Symphony Agency, what it is, what it does. Sure. So the Symphony Agency is a full service marketing and advertising company. We specialize in helping technology and healthcare companies grow and scale everything from website development, branding, social media marketing, content marketing, um, PPC campaigns, display. And then we also help our clients with some of the traditional stuff too. So brand collateral, uh, media buys, radio, TV, all that fun stuff. So we really are um, a full service agency and one of the largest in the Tampa Bay, in fact. Love it. Now do a brief description on who your clients are so people can kind of like stamp that this point in this moment. Sure. So like I mentioned, most of our clients are either in healthcare or technology. They're doing somewhere between 10 to 50 million in annual revenue on average. They probably have a website, but it's not generating a whole lot of leads for their business. And they're really looking to start creating an inbound funnel of leads because they know that that can happen digitally. For example, we recently started working with a client who's one of the largest home healthcare companies in Florida. And in their industry alone, the average revenue that's coming from digital marketing is about 20 to 30% of that type of business. They were seeing not even 5%. So they knew that they had a lot of opportunity to grow. And that's when companies call us because the difference between our agency and some of the more um, established companies that are our size is that we started in digital. So we didn't build a team, a multi-million dollar ad agency off of TV buys and radio. We built it off of creating leads 
lead generation from web and digital campaigns, and we know how to do it. So we're not trying to turn around the Titanic. We were built this way, and we really know how to make it succeed. Love that. Okay. That's not where you started, though. (laughs) Not where you started at all. (laughs) Give just a little bit of a snapshot as to how this company actually started for you and what you were doing in it. When I was in college, it was back, let's see, I graduated in 2010. And it was one of the years that the fewest college graduates were getting jobs after school. So I started seeing some of my friends who were graduating a year or two ahead of me, and they weren't finding jobs that they were excited about. So I was in school for journalism and marketing. And I talked to this little bar and restaurant I was working at into letting me run their social network marketing, uh, which means Facebook, but even better, MySpace. Oh, boy. (laughs) Nobody even remembers MySpace hardly anymore. So I started running their Facebook and MySpace pages, and it really took off. We were doing all sorts of fun stuff, like we were having local jewelers donate diamond earrings and local like boutiques donating coach bags. And we were doing all sorts of cool Facebook and MySpace giveaways before anybody had even thought of it. And so it really exploded. And by the time that I graduated, other companies had heard about what I was doing for this little bar and restaurant. So now I was not only just working for that place, but a couple other bars and restaurants, an attorney, a doctor, uh, I was working for a magazine and really created on accident my own little job. Now, you kept on going with that. It sounds like you got very busy pretty fast being able to sort of manage all of those clients. Was there a turning point in that when you were like, okay, I kind of need to get out of the doing of all of this and I need to think about strategically growing for myself? Yeah, absolutely. So before before I actually graduated, I was really serious about going to law school. I have always been in love with research and study and reading. And I took my LSAT did great, and then applied for school, got some scholarships, but then realized that school was going to cost me about $80,000, but I was already making about $80,000 a year doing consulting. And I was like, okay, this doesn't really make sense for me to go to law school. I'm going to put that on the back burner for a minute, and I'm just going to see what where this takes me. But the only problem was I might have been making $80,000 a year, but I was working like 100 gajillion hours a week. <laughs> I like that number. (laughs) hundred gajillion. It's a real... (laughs) All of these clients were paying me like a college kid. So I was making good money, but I was having to work my butt off like over and beyond to do it. So that was really a huge turning point for me because I realized that if I had gone to law school that I wasn't going to have to work that many hours um, and could still make that kind of money. But at the same time, I had already kind of created this thing that was really really cool and innovative. So at that point, I looked and I said, I got to figure out how I can make more money in less time. And I had to start figuring out a different solution. So I knew that the clients who I already worked with were always going to see me as a college kid. They hired me when I was a college kid and that wasn't going to change. And I built a name for myself in the community at that point, but unfortunately with the brand of being a college kid. So I decided that I needed to pick up and move if I was going to build that brand anything past being a kid. So I looked around the country for somewhere that had a minimum population of about 200,000 people and a higher ratio of locally owned businesses to large corporations. 
big enough that you'd actually find clients, not so big you'd get lost. And then of course, being able to get to the head of the snake is really important as a small business owner. So St. Petersburg, Florida hit the map and it was the sunniest city in the country. And so me and my dog, we packed our bags and we headed down here. I did not know a soul at that point. It was a little crazy, but it has been the best decision I ever made. So that was one of the biggest turning points. So you moved down here without knowing a soul. Did you say goodbye to all those old clients or did you, because you could do it virtually from anywhere or were you still having those clients part doing the work for them? How did that work out? So a majority of those clients stayed on for the first six to 12 months is I got to, when I got down here, I literally started going to absolutely every networking thing under the sun. So I didn't have time to do the work that I was doing in the past, but it was okay because I was starting to build connections and build relationships with clients who are willing to pay me more. So I played a delicate balance between the two and pretty much weaned off a majority of my Nashville clients by about a year after I had been down here. Give us kind of a, a comparison point. On average, what I don't, and maybe you do this on sort of a monthly retainer type of a number. On average, the people from the area that you moved from, what were they paying you monthly versus what were you quoting monthly for in this new area, Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg that you are now in? Sure. Well, I tease all the time because I get asked this question a lot and I help a lot of other um, women who are looking to start their own agency or their own teams. I help them create packages and all this sort of thing. So <laughs> I tease all the time. My packages in Nashville started around $250 a month. And I think that the top level ones were like around 500 bucks. And when I got down here, I started selling them for like 750 1200 and like 2500 or something. Nice. Um, granted, I don't think I landed one of those 2,500 accounts until like years down the road. But just the difference between having a client who was paying $250 now paying 500 was a big difference. Right. It was the same, same product and service. They just solve the value in it. And that's really what, you know, pricing is all about is the value there. Okay. So you're going on, you're now new into the St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay area. And now you're like, okay, just kind of like you're focusing on a local market. You're networking your butt off. You're building relationships. Did it literally just happen like that? Like one by one, you started acquiring some clients. Tell me a little bit about that picture in the first little bit where you were really establishing yourself here. Or I guess the question is, what did you do that did work? To, est- to really establish yourself here and to establish yourself as that level of a service provider and what didn't work? Well, one of the first things that I think is really important, especially as women, is that we face different challenges. So when I first moved down here, I was 22 or 23. So I was still really young. So what I did is I had a female business mentor who told me one time after I had started, I started getting down here, going to networking events. It's Florida, so it's hot. So I was wearing cute sundresses and and all that kind of jazz. And she sat me down and she was like, Lauren, I'm telling you this out of love, but we got to update your wardrobe. We need you to look more professional. Let's put some slacks. Let's throw on some jackets. I had dyed my hair darker. So I would look older. I'm platinum blonde now. Go figure. So I, I created more of a professional professional persona to start. And that was really key because it was so interesting to see the difference between the way people treated me in sundresses versus when I had on something that was more professional with a jacket and maybe a couple darker colors. So that was huge. That was a big changing point for me and how much, uh, what I actually saw from generating clients because now I wasn't the cute girl out and about networking. Now I looked more serious and more professional. Right. Um, so that 
that was huge. So making sure that you have a professional appearance, especially when you're starting, is everything for a brand. So I had a professional appearance after I had that great conversation with um, my mentor, and I was I did a lot of BNI. I joined a BNI chapter, and one of the things that I think is great about BNI, I tease a lot and say that BNI is like the super, super strict version uh, of networking, but it teaches you a lot. And if you haven't ever been, if you haven't ever built a business or done any type of like professional networking, it's really good for that specifically. So I joined a BNI chapter, gained a fir- couple of my first clients through there. I'm also a member of Working Women of Tampa Bay. So establishing my experience there. And I did quite a few speaking gigs with them, of course, all unpaid at the time, but those were huge for building more exposure for for me. And then I utilized social networks just like I do today to help expand my network as well. I love that. Uh, it's so funny. So I have a master's in communication and one of the specific niche classes that I took there was performance. That's what they call it. Performance communication. So what are my clothes saying about who I am? What are they communicating? What is my hair color communicating? What the fact that, you know, I show up this way in a video or in person or to a networking, like all of that stuff communicates a message. And so, you know, I think that the best thing that you could do is line up all of those forward facing things with how you want to be perceived and how you want to, you know, what you're asking for. It works a little differently in the online space, truthfully, because if you can find that niche where your version of a disheveled, I just came out of my workout clothes, which by the way, I do a lot of that stuff. But you know, like I I sort of have the freedom to do that because I've built up this amazing community of women versus if you're starting from nothing and you're really trying and you're meeting people one on one, there is and you want to ask $750 up to $2,500 per month for a service. I mean, they better be able to trust you and know that you're serious about business by looking at you. There's a very real component of that. As much as the rebel in me wants to buck against that, there's a very real thing there called people perceive you in a certain way. And so you are in charge of how that perception is. You get to control that perception. Right. Absolutely. And that's a good point. So like, Today, you can find me in jeans and a t-shirt at the office. That's what I'm wearing right now. And I wear tons of bright blue color. And like I said, my hair is no longer dark. I'm platinum blonde. But I've taken the time. I've established a brand. People know who I am. And they've already accepted me from a standpoint of an authority in the space. So it's not as important today. But when you're getting started, oh my goodness, it's so crucial that you're putting forward a presentation of exactly how you want people to see you. And it's not about acting. It's not about lying. I'm not saying create something that's not real. But what I am saying is that you have to know and understand that people are going to judge you by your outward appearance. And so washing your hair, putting on a little bit of makeup and, you know, presenting yourself like you take yourself seriously says a, a lot to other people, even if we don't really realize it. Yeah. Very, very good point taken. So, so now we're in this space where you are, you've established yourself in Tampa Bay in St. Petersburg. Like you're talking about all these great practical things that you did in order to do that. At what point do you finally see that I need help? Like I actually need to build a team. Like I actually, I can't be the only one doing this. 
part of the thing that started growing as I started attracting new clients is I wasn't just doing social network or social media marketing anymore. Uh, I've always loved art and design. And so I got into Photoshop and I was doing, you know, I was designing print pieces and flyers and I had gotten into in the social media stuff is so critical for your website to be a strong foundation and be, you know, for you to generate content that you can then syndicate through social media. They basically work hand in hand. And so I was working on the back end of websites now and doing certain engine optimization. So I had my hands in all of these different pots. And although I was good at it, I'm a pretty good juggler. The problem was, is I wasn't getting great at anything across the board, not getting great at anything. And so that's when I really realized, okay, I need to start building a team. I need to find people who can be great at things. Um, and we can just do it together. So I hired my first team member uh, about two and a half or three years into moving down here from there, just kind of, I had had a couple of in like part-time interns, uh, before that full-time team member, but that full-time team member was really a game changer. Huge. Can you give any practical tips on how to successfully delegate? And I'm going to ask that question knowing that I'm sure you made a lot of mistakes as all of us who delegate have. So can you give some advice to somebody who is listening, who probably has delegated in the past and it has not been successful and or knows that in order for them to really grow this empire and this agency and this whatever big thing that they are interested in growing, that they really do have to entrust other people with their brand and with the to-dos of their company. So what good advice could you give for that? Setting expectations is the number one most crucial piece of any type of delegation. And then once those expectations are set, following up. So I think one of the biggest problems in business today is that we're kind of in a pendulum swing and we're at the top of one of those swings from a standpoint of how management is perceived. So when I started the company, I really could not imagine being stuck with a moronic boss who was going to micromanage me and who probably didn't know nearly enough, like hardly anything about what I was doing. Well, today, there are a lot of times that I am that moronic boss. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's a delicate dance to do to be, I wanted to be able to give our team 100% autonomy. And it's one of the things that we really failed at early on. And we're still learning, honestly, because the biggest thing that people who you're employing or that you are working with from a contractor perspective, they want to know, A, do they have expectations that they know that they can meet and deliver upon? And B, they want to know if somebody actually gives a damn. So those two, answering those two questions are really important. And what it typically ends up being is follow up that falls through when you're not setting those expectations and when you're trying to not micromanage people. So some of the best things that I've learned from that standpoint is make sure that everything is written down. Absolutely nothing is more important when you're delegating to a team that expectations are written so that there is a backlog for going back to see, you know, what was actually said so that you can figure out where your communication errors started and fix those for the future. And then also being bold and not letting things fall to the wayside as far as accountability goes. Because <laughs> I read this great book recently um, called uh, Critical Confrontations. It's the follow-up to Crucial 
Conversations. I didn't even know there was a follow-up book to that, but it's amazing. And one of the things it talked about is it gave this example of, as an employer, you've got a receptionist who is supposed to be there at eight o'clock. You've set that expectation and she keeps coming in late. You sat her down, you talked to her the first time, but you keep talking to her about the fact that she's late, but that's not the real problem. And then finally, as an employer, you get to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, Sally, who's supposed to be at the reception thing at eight o'clock, I'm ready to strangle her. I want to fire her now. But all you've talked about is the fact that she's late. And the book talks about that there are three core pieces of how you need to address these types of conversations that will keep better alignment with the relationship as a whole. So it first says, talk about the content. What is the content? She's late. That's the very first thing you talk about the very first time it happens. Do not let it happen multiple times. First time it happens, bring them in on a one-on-one basis and have that conversation. Susie, you signed up for this job. You knew you needed to be here at eight o'clock. What's going on? Do you have a roadblock? Is there some way that I can help you make that conversation safe? Then the second step is if she's late again a week later, you bring her back in and you say, okay, this is no longer about the content. This is about the pattern. So Susie, we talked about it last week. You said you were going to be in on time. You're not in on time. This looks like a pattern. What's going on? She agrees then to be back. It was a mistake. You know, she locked her keys out of her car or whatever it is. Okay, fine. If she's late again, then it's not about the content. It's not about the pattern. It's about the relationship. It's about because she's been late and she's been late multiple times, it's affecting your level of trust with her. And if you can't trust her to do what she said that she's going to do, then this working relationship isn't going to work out. You're going to have to put in, you know, a 90 day performance improvement plan and it's, you're going to have to get it fixed or it's going to have to, you know, you're going to have to walk away friends. So that's probably one of the most valuable things that I've learned is to figure out how to set those expectations and then to address them immediately in ways that actually address the real problem versus just addressing what it feels like is the problem. Right. Oh, those are such practical steps on how to do that overall thing, which is, you know, set expectations and follow through with them. That is very practical advice. And I will make sure to have the link to those books, specifically this book, The Critical Conversations. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. It's worth noting that that is absolutely useful, whether this is a a part-time employee, a full-time employee, or even a contractor, somebody who's doing contract work for the company that you're building, all of those expectations. Or or your husband. (laughs) Bleep this out. There are so many situations we could use that for. It's a great, just a life lesson kind of thing. Yeah. It's It's been something that's been really, really valuable for me and for our leadership team. I mean, we've been talking about it too, and it's it definitely makes a difference. Okay. So I'm actually kind of like jumping way forward on this, but because we're talking about this topic, I mean, you really went from being the person, the solopreneur in your business, doing the work that you were also selling and marketing and <laughs> dealing with to now you have a team of how many? We've got a team of just over 20 right now. You have a team of just over 20. So your job nowadays is not actually doing the work that your clients need. Your job is really managing the people who do the work. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about what your current challenges are as an entrepreneur and how you're dealing with those head on. Most days I'm not jumping in and doing any of the work. I mean, you know, every once in a while. (laughs) Um, I think that that's something that all 
entrepreneurs that are scaling at any level are always finding themselves getting stuck doing. The management part of it for me has been a really big challenge. And I have people tell me all the time that uh, that's totally normal. (laughs) If I had a real resume, my last job description would be bartender at Longhorn Steakhouse. (laughs) I never really had a great example of what quality management looked like. Um, I have a leadership team who has more management experience than I do uh, in the corporate world, but they're also entrepreneurs at heart. And I think that the reality is, is that for most entrepreneurs, management does not come easily. Uh, And the the reason being is because we're so typically an entrepreneur uh, is someone who started as a technician, got really good at something, figured out how to sell it. And then voila, you're an entrepreneur and you've got a growing business. Well, you're great at doing whatever that technical task is, but to be able to manage and delegate that task to other people is like control freak problems. Okay. So across the board with a management team who is all very entrepreneurial, that's been a huge challenge. I do a lot, a lot of reading to try to expand my skill sets. Our team is really amazing from a standpoint of letting us know when we totally screw it up, <laughs> which is which has been a really good thing. And then we try to create a culture where it's okay to tell the management team that they totally messed that up because we're all people. And I think at the end of the day, whether you are a solo entrepreneur or whether you're managing a team of a thousand, we are all just people trying to do the right thing. Um, and when you create a culture that cultivates that, it makes it more safe. And so that's what we've tried to do. I love that you are speaking to that because what I'm seeing behind the words of what you're saying is sort of this forward facing, like we are professional. I am professional. I show up and I know exclusively well how to help my clients with what they need help with. On the back end, though, behind the scenes, it feels sometimes like it's falling apart and it feels sometimes like I'm not succeeding very well and it feels like it's not pretty and that I'm constantly figuring this stuff out. And that the clash of those two things is a really interesting concept that I see in business owners, whether they've been in business a year or three decades, whether they are a $20,000 a year business or whether they are a $5 million business. Like it doesn't matter. I guess as I've seen businesses over and over and over again, what is so valuable that I'm loving hearing you say is that thing constantly exists. And I personally think that that's a great thing to exist because the moment you're complacent in your business and everything is quote unquote running beautifully and oh so loving, like that's the end of business, right? The day that you're not innovating, the day that you're not challenging yourself or forced to grow in some way is really great. But I'm loving that you're speaking to that truth that even after all these years and even as a solid seven figure business with 20 some employees, you're still having that clash of like, yes, we are professional. And yes, we have established ourselves as being phenomenal at what we do. And we, I suck behind the scenes sometimes and I'm still figuring (laughs) it out. Right. So I just, I'm, I'm loving that you're giving voice to that because the work is constantly showing up and being willing to live in that uncomfortable space. Right. And it's definitely uncomfortable. I mean, we scaled. So this is, oh, holy crap, 2017. And let's see, three years ago, we opened our first office and we went from being, so four years ago, we went from being a company that did about $40,000 a year in annual revenue 
to about 400 in less than 12 months. Wow. That is some seriously painful crap. Yeah. you. So even three years ago, we were only doing just under half a million dollars. And now we're doing multi millions of dollars. I mean, scaling is painful. I just recently was quoted in an article for Inc magazine and talking about how painful scaling really is. I mean, it's just not pretty. (laughs) It's just really not. I will be the first one to say that we have clients that we refunded their money for things that we screwed up. We hired Mm. people too fast. We didn't have processes in place scaling quickly is not a fun or pretty thing. Well, and even scaling over time. Oh my goodness. Scaling slowly. (laughs) It's growth. It can be painful. And I think that that's a powerful message to hear. And the scaling, whether, because there are plenty of people, especially in the online space are like, I'm just going to remain a solopreneur. I'm just going to do it all myself. I'm building a lifestyle business, right? Which is totally cool. But you still need other people in your wheelhouse, like to support you in that in some way, right? And then also if you're on the other end of the scale where you're like, yes, my vision of growth is more people, more clients or higher level clients or what have you, like you got to own up to the fact that you've got to grow. You've got to scale. And I am just a believer and I talk about it all the time on the show that this entrepreneurial journey is a personal development course like no one has ever gone through. And that is the whole thing is like whether you're growing because you have more clients and now you need to figure it out or because you're not getting the amount of clients that you need and you are forced to grow to figure out how to bring in that money because that's what you need to do or because you are having so much growth and you now need to freaking deliver really well and you're, you don't have the system set up to do that, right? Yeah, it is. It's, it can be very painful. What has made it worthwhile for you? You've had tremendous growth in a relatively short period of time, we're talking seven years from a $40,000 a year business to multi seven figure business in seven years. That's a relatively short period of time. What has made it worthwhile for you? Why do you show up every day? I've always been the kind of person who loved a really big challenge. I once had a contractor that I worked with, the true story. I had contracted him to help me with a graphic design project. And I was on vacation and ended up having to do the project on my own because he used a graphic that had not been purchased and a fake statistic. True story fake statistic. So on my vacation, I am sitting at the pool recreating this graphic that I'm having to pay him for. And he's like getting mad about me, like not wanting to pay him. And he told me that the only reason that I was going to succeed in life and in my business was because I was pretty and true story. It is those moments like that, whether it's that or whether it's, you know, other people told me that I was insane from the standpoint of going to grow a business where I didn't know a single person and I was too young and I was too immature and I wasn't going to be able to do this. It's those kind of things that drive me like crazy to keep pushing. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, those are great drivers, but it's also about just wanting to make the biggest impact possible. I'm not going to be great at that every day and I'm going to fail multiple times a day. Sometimes it feels like, but at the end of the day, what we're doing helps our clients grow. We're helping amazing, incredible people with great quality products and services, help more people. We're building jobs internally with our clients. We're changing a little piece of our world. And I think that that's really, really special. I love it. I cannot think of a better way to end this conversation. Lauren, I really want to thank you so much for sharing so much about your journey and giving some really solid insights to how this has been 
really amazing and a struggle <laughs> and real. And that's ultimately what I wanted to show here. And just huge congratulations on everything that you've experienced and the success that you're having. But there ain't no stopping you. Like it's just, it's going to keep on going. And we're going to look back on this. You're going to listen to this in like five years. You're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe I was talking about that. I'm so over that. I got this issue now, right? But that's the whole point is that this is a giant journey. And this is a lifelong journey. And I just so honor the journey that you've had so far. And thank you so much for sharing it with everyone. Thanks, Katie. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to today's episode. I never take it for granted that you, a very busy and high performing woman entrepreneur, listens to the Biz Women Rock podcast. If you got any value out of today's show, if there were any aha moments that you had, I would so appreciate you turning around and sharing it with another woman entrepreneur who needs that aha as well. From me and the entire Biz Women Rock team, we'll see you on the next episode.